So brothers and sisters, uh, in preparation for word and sacrament, I invite you to stand and we're going to confess together our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. Let's confess together what we believe. We believe in one God, the Father of the Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth, and of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in my Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate in the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the churches. He ascended to heaven. between being an imitator and being an imitation. Because, you know, when I, when I think about imitations, I kind of tend to think of, like, cheap replicas, you know, of inferior quality that while they may look good on the outside, they, they don't ultimately last as long or, or work as well. But an imitator is different. Uh, an imitator is, is an homage. It's a, it's a special honor uh, or sign of respect shown publicly to pay tribute to someone or something that's worthy of following or emulating uh, and in our Christian life brothers and sisters there's a heaven and hell difference between the two and hopefully you're going to see those ideas start to flesh out today as we go again to Paul's uh, first letter to the Thessalonians where he's commending his original audience and by extension us for for getting in lockstep with the teachings of our Lord and at the same time warning of the dangers inherent in any second-class substitutes. And so I hope you have your own personal Bibles with you. I'm going to invite you to join me in 1 Thessalonians, New Testament book, just right after, uh, directly after Colossians. And if you find Colossians, just go right. And I'm going to be reading to you verses, uh, or rather chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 20. So listen for the voice of the Spirit. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but it's what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. 
For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered in the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, your word has been read and heard. But now, Father, write it on our hearts that we may imitate you and walk in your ways. Reflecting your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So a long time before Oscar Wilde decided to borrow it, uh, a Christian minister by the name of Charles Caleb Colton actually coined the phrase, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And, and by that, he didn't mean trying to be a cheap knockoff, but instead a, a, a genuine following in the footsteps of one who is worthy of emulating. And when I was kind of thinking of that in my mind, the best kind of like visual example I could think of was this, this one time I was watching a video of my niece's wedding when a guy walked through the frame that I thought was my dad, but when the individual turned around, it turns out it was me. <laughs> Did that ever, that ever happen to any of you guys? Or maybe you ladies, right? <laughs> it was really kind of uncanny because I had never noticed uh, how similar we both were in the way that we walked. Uh, from the, the gate to the, the way we swung our arms, right down to the way that we positioned our hands when we were standing still. And of, and of course, that, you know, I've noticed I picked up other things from my dad's, his mannerisms, I know some of his speech patterns, and of course his worldview, obviously. But I never realized he also walked like him. Um, and it wasn't like my dad ever told me to follow his example in those minute details, I just kind of did it. And it was probably way more noticeable to other people who knew us both than it ever was to me. But that same kind of idea is coming out in today's text, where after commending these fledgling believers in Thessalonica for receiving the message of the gospel as the very oracles of God to them, Paul says, you became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. And so by that, Paul does not mean he's not asking his readers, you know, to join him in following others' examples and how to physically walk. But at the same time, he's praising them for and summoning them to continue to imitate the apostles' walk with the Lord after the manner of the original churches that our Lord himself and his first followers had established. And so Paul says the Thessalonian believers became imitators of the Judean churches. Now that that Greek word Paul uses for imitators uh, is the word from which we get uh, the origin of our English word mimic. Okay. Uh, Except it doesn't have kind of the same negative connotations in this context as that word does for us in English. Instead, it's really the idea of modeling. 
becoming like or following after someone. And even the closest it really has to the idea of anything artificial in the Greek is to the idea of, of being an actor. But, but only in the sense of how, you know, you've seen some of the greatest actors and actresses of our era spending days and months studying every nuance of a famous person that, you know, they almost become that person in the course of their portrayal. You've seen that, right? Like, like uh, Morgan Freeman playing Nelson Mandela or Ben Kingsley as, as Gandhi or Helen Mirren as Elizabeth II, where, you know, even though maybe they weren't mirror images of them physically, they still captured that that particular nature and that essential behavior of the one they were imitating. And so Paul says one of the ways that the new believers in Thessalonica were imitating the founding churches in Jerusalem was in their faithful endurance of persecution, which was a perfect song you sang, Pastor Dan, to, to lead up to this. With Paul saying, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Jesus Christ that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen that they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And so Paul here is comparing the, the problems that the Thessalonian churches faced with their, from their fellow Greeks with those that the Christians in Judea had who were persecuted by their own countrymen. And now, obviously, of course, the persecution part was not an imitation by choice. Right? And no, nobody ever asks to be persecuted. But how they handled it and their willingness to endure it for the sake of Christ and his gospel is what Paul is emphasizing because the result shows a willingness to, in the words of one commentator, engage in a continuing quarrel with the world that stands in opposition to the Savior because of whom there's a common sharing in persecution all over the world. And we know that's true. And now for us, of course, because of our Christian heritage on which this nation was founded, we have escaped so far severe persecution for our faith in this country. But we are undoubtedly seeing it more and more every day here in the U.S. Just, and just a good example of this, look how the press has treated our new House Speaker, Mike Johnson, who, who, who actually dared to proclaim his allegiance to Christ and to his word from the third highest office in the land. And if you haven't seen, I, I love this interview he gave uh, where, where somebody, asked, somebody, somebody asked him, he goes, someone said to me today in the media, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue? He was giving this interview to someone on Fox. And his reply was, he said, I, I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. And that's my worldview. I like that, right? But in our society today, somebody would likely call a statement like that and would call the words of the Apostle Paul that I read in verses 14 and 15, they'd call that religious bigotry. But was it? No. no. Both men were merely stating facts and drawing hard lines and differentiating between light and darkness, between truth and error, between Christ and the devil. And in both cases, then and now, sadly, it seems like it's the people who ostensibly claim to be speaking for the faith who are in many of the corners from which a lot of the slings and arrows seem to be coming. Because just like it's all of the progressive so-called religious folks today who are blasting Mike Johnson and who are accusing of, uh, in their words, they say, offending the Constitution and the New Testament with his appeal to God inside the House chamber, 
It was the most supposedly religious of the Jews who allied themselves with the Romans to put Christ on the cross. And our current administration is imitating their callous insider politics in the way they violate their own consciences to say nothing of God's law to get whatever they want. Just like first century politicians did to Jesus. Even though he was of their own people and came as their Messiah and their kinsman redeemer. And so now in, in today's text, in the same way, the Thessalonians must have been really surprised and extremely hurt that it was their own countrymen who persecuted them for their newfound faith. And so to comfort them, one author said, Paul wrote to remind the Thessalonians that they are imitators of the suffering of the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea, who suffered from their own, because no matter where we go, Satan, the God of this world, stands opposed to the gospel and to Christians and will do his best to both thwart the message and attack believers. So in other words, he's saying to the Thessalonians and to us that suffering at the hands of one's own people and even one's own family is par for the course. It's not anything unusual, but it's simply the natural progression and continuing plot of the world, the flesh, and the devil's fight against the plan of salvation as revealed in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And in, in doing what they're doing, Paul says, they displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. And so this word from Paul reassured the Thessalonians that not only were they not alone, but that their persecution actually proved that they were on God's side. Making that persecution an act not against humanity, but an act against the Lord himself. And then Paul continues, but wrath has come upon them at last because don't forget when Paul wrote this letter, the, the Jews were already under Roman rule as a judgment from God. But an even greater judgment would soon come to them in the destruction of Jerusalem and the dispersion of 70 AD when the Roman armies would march on Jerusalem and destroy the temple. But they, wouldn't, they still wouldn't listen. And I know you, we've probably all kind of seen this happen where it, and it may even be with someone you love where you have people that are continually having all these personal difficulties and, and trials just, just one after another after another but they never want to hear anything about God or about church or about their need for salvation and somehow they never seem to get the connection between the two even though you try to point it out to them. Now, don't mishear me. Obviously, I'm not saying come to Christ and all your troubles are going to vanish. But I am saying that you can't spit in his face and expect things to be all sunshine and roses. Amen. Because, church, for people like that who never repent, as for the evil men who killed our Christ, and for those who tried to subvert his early church, and for those Greeks who tried to stifle the Thessalonians, a still greater future judgment awaits them beyond the grave. And then finally, at the coming wrath of the great white throne judgment, the one of which Revelation 20 has the apostle John saying that I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. 
And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And I touched on this it was in a sermon with you guys almost exactly a year ago today when I said, you know, if you think about it, one of the greatest promises that we Christians have and, and one that all of Scripture really confirms for us is that in the final analysis, you were either born twice and die once or you're born once and die twice. And, and, and guys, that's not meant to be complicated. It's really very simple if you think about it. Meaning that if you are born again, if you've experienced the second birth by trusting Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will only have to endure the singular experience of physical death, and then you will live forever in the blessedness of God's kingdom. But if you're only born once, if you're only born into the world of humanity and you are never born again by the Holy Spirit of God, you will experience not only the death of the physical body, but you will experience the second living death of eternal punishment in hell reserved for the devil and his angels. Those who even now come only to steal and kill and destroy everything that God loves, including you and me. And they're, they're also the reason why Paul wrote today to the Thessalonians. But since we were torn away from your brothers for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, I Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. So if you remember, we talked about this. Paul's departure from Thessalonica was not his own doing. It was, it was forced on him by the human enemies of the gospel. And Paul left because of external threats. And evidently, some of these were pretty severe ones because, you know, from what we know about Paul, he wasn't a guy just to turn tail and run, right? And similarly, he had not returned to Thessalonica at the time he wrote this letter because some equally powerful opposition in the form of the king of impostors, the, the devil was standing in his way. But either way, the counterfeit message was still manifesting itself with the same kind of subtlety and deceptiveness uh, of really what's going on around us today just under the surface. Because you know, like, right, as a general rule, we don't see Satan and his demons in person, right? They're, they're, they're spiritual beings. I mean, occasionally, you know, you might see or hear a demonic apparition or a voice coming from a demon-possessed person who are able to perform supernatural acts, one of which I've actually seen. But that's kind of very few and far between. Normally what we see are the human faces and the human strategies and values that oppose the plan of God. But either way it comes, they have the same plan, which is to dethrone God and enthrone themselves, which is to degrade and slander God's character. To deny God's word and dominate humanity. To destroy God's purposes in creation and deceive through moral relativity. And to distort the blessings of God and take that which God has created good and perverted through the delusions of adultery. And homosexuality and pornography and every other kind of alternative lifestyle. And all of that flowing from the demented idea that those people can be like God. Deciding what is good and what is evil. And way too many of us Christians get duped because we tend to ignore the reality of who we're really dealing with. We, we may talk about it, we may intellectually assent to it when we're in Bible study, but we tend to ignore the present reality of Satan and his demonic hosts. 
And we do it by our failure to draw close to the Lord. And we do it by our failure to put on the spiritual armor that God has provided for us. And we do it even by our aversion to the point of neglect of practicing corporate prayer. And, and I praise God for you handful of guys who come out once a month to pray in public with us at Village Inn. But church, as effective as the prayers of one or two people are, we need a whole lot more. Because as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. So is he saying that we have no struggle with rebellious men and women and sinful people? No. But he is saying that behind the scenes and working through people and through the world system and through those things we see around us are super powerful evil forces and that the devil will do everything he can to hinder us and neutralize us and destroy us. And, and he'll attempt to do it through the body, through the church, by stirring up trouble. And he'll work through religious people like the Jews of Paul's day or the, the cults of today. And he works through popular philosophies and ideologies and the myths of this world. And he works through politics and economics and the government and our workplace. But in spite of all of that, church, there's a wonderful and comforting truth today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Where Paul tells us that while he might be hindered from returning to his newly minted flock, that he continued to have a ministry and to teach the word. He, he still remained useful. He was not defeated because he knew the Lord was in control and that although he may be personally bound and hindered, that the word of God is never bound. And so he says, for what is our hope or our joy or crown of blessing before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Meaning that because Paul and his companions had labored in the word and planted the seeds of the gospel and because those believers had responded that even if he never got back to them in Greece, that when the Lord comes, he would meet those new converts in heaven with rewards of their own. Because church, God's word always accomplishes everything it purposes to. All, all we're required to do by Christ is to present it. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend the lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose. And the lion defends itself. In fact, years earlier, Martin Luther had argued... The whole tide of the Protestant Reformation had swept forward on the preaching of that same gospel. He said, I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank my Wittenberg beer, the word did all the work. And church, God, by his spirit, continues to work in that same way today. And the Lord blesses the same gospel and the same ordinary sharing of it, whether it's Paul in Thessalonica or the Reformers of Europe or the pilgrims at Plymouth or you and me today as we trust the authority of God's word desiring to run with endurance the race that's set before us and looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and church it's him we imitate in the sincerest form emulating him through our sanctification as the Holy Spirit brings conviction and illumination, molding us closer and closer into the image of the Father. And a very important piece of that journey of imitation starts right here at this table of mercy.
and with the very real, very genuine presence of our Lord Jesus in, with, and under the guise of bread and wine. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper. Recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ and, and asking you, Lord, by the joy of his resurrection and expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your truth and love so we can confess your name and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this time and in this place that eyes may be opened that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts. This meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.